Hello, and welcome to Down to Sally's Cove, a collection of stories about Newfoundland and Labrador by the late Ella Manuel and read by me, Anthony Berger. I'm the editor of my mother's writings about the history and rich culture of the places and people she knew and loved. Many of these stories she read on local and national radio in the 1940s to 1970s. In the early 1960s, Ella journeyed around northern Newfoundland by coastal steamer, then the only public means of moving people and goods from one isolated outport to another. In this account of one trip she made around western Notre Dame Bay, she tells of her conversations with the captain. It was late summer when I boarded the coastal steamer on a calm moonlit sea. When we were away from land, there came such a creaking and rolling that I couldn't sleep, so I watched the dawn break from my window on the boat deck. We were heading for the Bayvert Peninsula. I was eager to see something of the outports in and around the serpentine western coast of Notre Dame Bay, full of inlets and islands linked to each other and the world only by boat. Growing up in Lewisport, I had heard of many of these from my father, who had traveled this way on his mercantile rounds. Although his black hair was turning gray, the skipper's face was as round as unlined as a child's, except for the squinting lines around his deep-set gray eyes. His only concession to weather was a pair of sheepskin-lined boots, than which nothing could have been more incongruous. "'Starboard a quarter, me dear,' he was saying to the helmsman as I reached the top of the ladder, and I heard a curious little sigh, which was his punctuation to every order. "'May I stay up here and watch you dock?' I asked, for we were approaching Little Bay Islands. "'Sure, but stay over there in the corner of the bridge, because we got some job getting her in, and I moves around quite a lot.' The passage into the harbour was hardly wider than the ship, and as we slipped through, we could almost touch land on either side. And I thought to myself, all very well getting in, but what about getting out again? In that harbour, and in many others, I watched the enthralling game between ship and crew, against wind and tide, a game played with different rules for each port. Sometimes we'd steam in with the wharf face open to our bow, heave a line and finish with engines. In other ports we would literally slide in, bow on, and warp her around. Then going out we would inch ahead, swing the bow around, go astern a few yards, and do it all over again until we were heading for open water. If the tide was running out, we would use the anchor to hold the bow off the rocks until the precise moment when the bow swung. And sometimes we would not enter a harbor, but would anchor outside and send the loaded mailboat ashore. When we'd tied up, the skipper said, Well, we got an hour or more here, my dear. We'll have to unload lumber and take on fish. Well, why don't you go for a walk, and I'll blow the whistle in plenty of time for you to get back here. So I went to the village, where the sun poured down on houses, strung along the beach and higgledy-piggledy up the cliffs. I don't know how many backyards I trespassed on before I found the road over the rocky, turfy land. A few trees grew. In one garden were aspens, juniper, damson, and two dogberry trees loaded with scarlet berries. Forget-me-nots grew in a ditch along the hillside, on the top of which I had a breathtaking moment. I saw a fish shed across a narrow gut, perched on the water's edge and backed by rocky cliffs, 
The shed's six windows caught the sunlight, reflected into the wind-disturbed water, and caught the reflection back again in a moving curtain of ebony and silver. The whistle recalled me and I joined the skipper on the bridge. The mate came up to report that the radar had gone on the blink, to which the skipper replied, Ah, throw the damn thing overboard. I can smell land quicker than that thing can see it. He hated modern aids to navigation and mistrusted them almost as much as he did landsmen and a little more than he did his fellow seamen. Once, he told me, we were coming across the gulf from Sydney with a load of coal, me and another boat. I had radar and the other fellow didn't, so when I see this big liner bearing down on the two of us, I called to him to come up alongside of me so we'd both be in the clear. So he hauls in close aboard, and didn't that great leviathan steam down between us and sweep the coal clear off our decks with her wash? He blew his nose, gave a direction to the helmsman, sighed, and continued. Out on the Straits of Belle Isle, I can tell you I wouldn't poke me nose out for anything if there was one of them big freight ships in sight. They wouldn't change course for little chips of things like us, not if we had all the right of way in the world. I said it must be hard on his nerves, and he swore a most satisfying oath that you couldn't be skipper these days and have nerves, too. All day long the sun shone and everything was blue, from deepest indigo to the blue-gray of islands smudged on the horizon. A rainbow clung to our bow, a miracle no matter how often one sees it. We steamed for Snook's arm to pick up a hundred barrels of salt fish, but when we arrived there were only twenty-three, and the skipper swore because somebody had lied to him to get off his course to an unscheduled port of call. Well, we put into little coves, anchored off islands, and wherever we went, people in their best clothes came to see us, for we were strangers and might have exciting news from outside. Sometimes they joined us for a little cruise, but one man was obviously leaving it all for good. He had five tin trunks, and a wooden tool chest arranged on the wharf under a tarpaulin anchored with beach rocks. And when the trunks were put into a canvas sling and hoisted into our hold, he solemnly shook hands with a knot of tobacco-chewing men and climbed our gangway. No women in his life? Well, perhaps he was going outside to find one. He hadn't much choice in this tiny settlement. The skipper called, "'Come here and see this, my dear.' A small tanker on the horizon, wallowing in the swell, was washed over with fire from the setting sun, and as she rolled, something on her deck gathered the sun's rays and sent them flashing to us like a gigantic red star. And then the fire died as the sun sank, muted red gold into the sea, and for hours after the northern sky was softly bright. I asked the skipper, Is it true that waves come in cycles, a few small ones and then a big one? I was confounded when he quoted, Send me a ninth great peaceful wave to drown and roll me under, to the cold tunny fish's home where the drowned galleons are. He loaned me his copy of John Macefield so I could read the rest of the poem. But you don't want to drown, I asked. Drown, he said. No, I don't suppose I do, but I dare say I will, just the same. I hope it won't be soon. There's so many ports of call to make. And then, quick as a flash, his head swiveled round and he shouted out, Look out, Jim, watch what you're doing with that chain. To me, he remarked, Dem young fellows got to watch them every damn minute. And he did. He watched them as I would a three-year-old crossing a busy street. 
In his tight little world, circumferenced by wind and centered by the watch-bell, he actually brooded over his thirty men. We hauled around Cape St. John and headed for La Cie. Here, three calves and a cow went over the side in a crate, and as soon as they were released, they careened up a grassy bank in ecstasy, with village children in full cry behind. It was night now, and the fish plant loomed butter-yellow in the moonlight. On the wharf had gathered a crowd of people, from which four little men disengaged themselves, and one after the other walked up the gangplank, across the deck, and up the bridge ladder. I heard a murmur of voices, quiet, portentous, and I saw in the light of the chart room a paper change hands. The four little men climbed down and disappeared, and the skipper behind me said, Ah, what man proposes? Ah, you know the rest. Just got a message to take a feller to hospital. Got his face smashed in with a mallet. The man, swathed in blankets and followed by his wife, was brought on board and put in the best cabin. We cast off and steamed through the moonlit night to the nearest hospital, and then back again around Cape St. John to Springdale we headed, back to the soft moonlight on the wooded arms of Green Bay. Sometime during that passage, I remembered that my father and grandfather and great-grandfather, yes, and further back than that, had sailed these very waters in their homemade schooners. The ghost of my great-uncle Jonathan Manuel came to keep me company. He who had seen this same moon, felt the heave of these waters, watched these stars swinging round a mast, and his voice echoed to me, My maid, you're just like us, can't stay away from the water. And I replied to him, I'm glad of it. The skipper was on the bridge by the time I had finished breakfast. Did you have a good night, I inquired. Finest kind, my dear. We got good mates on this boat, some though I wouldn't trust. I'll never forget one night when I had a new third mate on. T'was clear and fine and we were hauling to the bite, so I thought I'd have a nap. I told him to keep a straight course and to call me if anything happened. Well, I hardly got me boots off when in he rushes. Skipper, get up, get up, he yelled in me ear. We're in somebody's backyard. And so help me, we got on deck. There on our port bow was a house, curtains all up and everything. I nearly choked till I seen it was somebody launching a house, floating on empty oil drums being towed from one side of the bite to the other. Being a fine night, the feller's toner went ashore for a mug-up and not expecting us left her right in the run. And all the time the mate was blabbing, I couldn't figure out how he was going to get out of that garden. We steamed past Calvary Hill and Cape Brulee at the entrance to Packet Harbour and came to Coachman's Cove, called by the French Havre du Pau d'Etain. A lovely little cove formed by a narrow peninsula on which stood a tiny white lighthouse. The air was crystal. Smoke rose straight from little houses, newly washed looking, scattered along the beach in front of hills rising soft and smooth. There were nets on the fences, fish drying on the flakes, and whiskered old men in homespun jerseys sculling black punts. And the skipper said, Wonder those people don't move to bigger places. All this money wasted sending a steamer for a few families. With all the money we're wasting on destruction, I shot back, surely we can afford to link with this small pocket of serenity. Serenity, he snorted. But the way it looked that morning, I could have spent the rest of my life in Coachman's Cove with the island called Gentil to protect me from the sea.
The skipper leaned over the bridge and shouted to a sailor on deck, "'Mind you don't part that cable!' And just as that moment the wire broke with a vicious snaking in the air an inch from the skipper's head. He looked startled for a moment and then let out a great gusty bellow of a laugh that reverberated the length of the ship. "'You nearly had it that time,' I said, my knees trembling. "'Guess my time hasn't come,' he shrugged. "'Fate? A miracle? Some think one way, some another.' And then he told me, once we got into a terrible storm and we had a deck load full of oil barrels and a hold full of machinery, and there I was I with a hundred people and probably a million dollars worth of cargo. I thought about it and then hove over some of the oil barrels that were rolling around, and then I thought about it some more, and I figured I'd done what I could, so I prayed. Well, don't you pray when you're not in trouble? I asked. I don't even think about it when I'm not in trouble. But it's awfully lonely being a skipper sometimes, because you've got too much responsibility for one man to carry. It's black outside, you know there are rocks about and shoals, but you can't see them. You get scared. No, no, not scared exactly, just awful anxious. Anyhow, what else can you do? No power on earth can help you. He looked away to the horizon for a moment and then added, Anyhow, I praise, and just as sure as you're there, he helps me. Well, in the old days, I said, they called up the devil. Yes, the skipper said, and I've heard them dare God instead of praying to him. I seen my old father, when I was fishing the Labrador with him, stand by the wheel in a gale of wind and tell God to come down and take the wheel, if he thought he could do any better. My father gloried in a storm. T'was his vessel, his cargo, and most of the crew was his family. Now tis different, different altogether, "'Twouldn't be much sense me paying the devil to call up wind. "'With steamers we don't want that, "'and that's all the devil is good for, a wind. "'Anyhow, where did you hear about that?' "'Well,' I said, "'I had a friend who used to live on the south coast. "'She told me she was coming around a headland "'one day in a small skiff. "'It was dead calm, "'and the two-men crew was pretty tired of rowing, "'so one fellow took a twenty-cent piece out of his pocket "'and threw it into the water, saying, "'Now then, old boy, send us some wind to sail home.' Well, did the devil send it? No, not that day. They rode home safely, but the next day the same two men were drowned on their way back from the fishing ground, drowned in a sudden squall off the headland, while dories ahead and astern didn't even see a cat's paw in the water. They found the two bodies exactly where they sank. I dare say, I dare say, mused the skipper, queerer things have happened. But mind you, where to God or the devil, you got to know how to help yourself before you start asking for it from either one of them. He told me then how he was once involved in a quite unjustifiable stranding, surrounded by shoals and hidden dangers. I didn't pray then, I worked. He eased the steamer's bow off the rocks, only to muzzle her stern against mud. He threw out anchors and warped her round. He ran engines dead slow but still churned rocks and mud with his propeller clear up to the bridge. And so he worked all through the night. Daylight brought the lighthouse keeper and his dory to the beleaguered steamer. Skipper and lighthouse man held a conference and the lighthouse keeper boarded his dory and with a 12-fathom line sounded a passage and got the ship to open water. "'Well, never be the same again, though,' said the skipper, "'because I can still taste the danger in my mouth. "'I'd have been disgraced for life if I'd lost my ship in there, "'and that would be worse than drowning.' "'I told him, "'You know what Joseph Conrad said about you seamen?' "'He said, 
Their sense of values in human and elemental behavior is unblunted, and they look upon their existence as a long, uproarious joke, relieved by not unentertaining interludes of necessary tragedy. Yes, said the skipper, I know, Conrad. Now take my brother. He'll never be skipper now, cause his eyes have gone on him. Yet he despises sailing under men not so old, nor as experienced as he. So I told him to go ashore. Well, what did he say to that, I asked. He said, eight hours a day in one job, eight hours in a bed, the same rocks and trees every damn day, I'd rather die. And I don't blame him, poor feller. And so, talking thus, we came to the port where I was to leave the steamer. Walking uphill from the wharf, I turned to watch her sail away, tossing her saucy little black stern in the swell. And I thought, to warp a little iron steamer into a lonely wharf in starlight, to feel the hull respond to the twist of the wheel, to beat to windward in a gale, and to sit in a tight company of seamen in a mess at midnight. Without that, a seaman might as well be dead. That was me, Anthony Berger, reading a story by the late El Emanuel from the podcast series Down to Sally's Cove. This was recorded in the studios of VOBB, the Voice of Bombay, community radio in the heart of Grossmore National Park in western Newfoundland. Recording engineer and sound editor was Gary Wilton. Background music from Coffee in the Cove, written and played by David Berger. Together with a biography of my mother, these and other stories are available in book form entitled No Place for a Woman, The Life and Newfoundland Stories of El Emanuel, published in 2020 by Breakwater Books, St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. Thanks for listening. Tune in to the next episode to hear Ella's memories of exploits where her manual forebears had lived for many years. <laughs>